Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. China launches military exercises around Taiwan after Pelosi visit. China unleashed a show of force against Taiwan today, firing missiles into the sea and threatening the island's territorial waters in retaliation for Taipei's hosting of U.S. Speaker Nancy Pelosi for a contentious visit. This, while South Korea's President Yoon refuses to cancel vacation to meet her and avoids infuriating China further after her Taiwan visit has sparked these military drills. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's a journalist, social activist, international business consultant, and chemical engineer, George Koo. As always, George, welcome back. Thank you, Wilmer and Garland. Nice to be back and very interesting topic, by the way. So, George, uh, go to it. So these military exercises, they have sent tensions in the Taiwan Strait, spiking to the highest level in decades, raising fears of a dangerous miscalculation and one of the world's most charged geopolitical flashpoints. And were you surprised that South Korean President Yoon refused to meet Nancy Pelosi? Well, let me quickly address the South Korean president's um He's, he was vacationing at home, by the way. Yes, and, uh, a staycation. So, staycation, yeah. yeah. Somehow he can't get away from his staycation to meet with Nancy. Um, his popularity, he was, he's just been elected about three months ago, and his popularity has already plummeted to less than 30% at home. So he clearly doesn't see any upside to meeting with Nancy especially seeing how poorly she performed in, in Taiwan and how badly she was received in Taiwan. So we'll just let that go uh, for what it's worth. The PLA response, by the way, um, I was listening to an analyst in Taiwan who was very much in, in, um, in the development of the anti-missile defense for Taiwan, so he his technical expertise is anti-missile defense. So I think what he had to say has a lot of legitimacy because he was he is obviously not pro-China in his analysis. And what he said I thought was very interesting. He says thanks to the Nancy Pelosi visit, the whole dynamics has changed. China no longer looks at the mid-straight line as any sort of a line of restraint. And because Nancy's flight went all the way around Indonesia and Philippines and came around into Taipei, totally avoiding the airspace that belonged to China, and then as she continued to South Korea, she also went all the way around and again skating the space, the, the inner circle, the inner island chain that the U.S. had heretofore considered their right to, de- to patrol and defend. What this is saying is that from now on, PLA will consider all those 
territorial waters as their own, and they don't expect any more U.S. naval vessels to uh, patrol those waters without a fight. Mm. And indeed, as soon as Nancy uh, safely left Taipei, U.S. Uh, the carrier Reagan backed off and, and headed out away from harm, and most of the naval ships, uh, U.S. naval ships, is backing away. So they, they, the U.S. actions has basically, thanks to Pelosi's trip, legitimized China's claim to their territorial water, and the whole dynamics from now on is going to be very different. And so who's left holding the bag? Well, it's Taiwan that's left holding the bag because now they don't quite know how they're going to be dealing with the frequent PLA fighter intrusions. And there's no indication that after August 7th, the uh, fighter, uh, inter, uh, fighter entering Taiwan airspace will stop because by setting this precedent, China is saying we can come in anytime we want. And that's, that's what Taiwan is left with. And as one, some other commentator observed, Nancy threw a party, but it's the Taiwan mm-hmm. people that's going to be picking up the tab and paying for this. And cleaning up and taking out the trash. Huh? Yeah, 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 exactly. And, you know, let's look at it. What, what has Nancy, what was Nancy looking to do? She obviously knew that her likelihood to continue as a Speaker of the House is likely to come to the end after the midterm election. So this is really her last chance to make a grand tour and burnish her credentials as a defender of human rights and democracy. And he did it at our taxpayers' expense. She not only took the U.S. military aircraft. She had escort from fighter jets on the on the uh, carrier Reagan. She had escorts from the Taiwan side to make sure she landed safely. She burned up a lot of gas on extra miles, and she supposedly even sent a decoy plane that looks just like hers to fly straight from Kuala Lumpur to Taipei pick the most obvious visible route to go to Taipei just in case somebody decides to take a shot at her. So, you know, I wonder how those pilots feel that <laughs> take doing the decoy flight, looking looking right and left and get to see if there's any uh, steam trails heading to them. You know, the other thing I think is, you know, I've read some interesting things, but it looks like there are some very significant economic actions being taken against Taiwan. There's an article, China detains a suspected Taiwanese separatist following Nancy Pelosi's trip. I think there's a message being sent from China, a very harsh message is going to be sent from China to Taiwan that the separatist movement, they're really going to go after them economically. They're going to go after them if they come to the mainland and that, you know, the party's over, that it's going to be hardball from now on. Yep, absolutely. And and already they have, on the eve of Pelosi's landing in Taipei, they have uh, declared uh, temporary stop halting of import of goods from Taiwan. And these are all agricultural goods, uh, food stuff, cookies, cake, 
all the things I can't stand sitting on the dock for very long before they spoil. And it's going to, uh, and they, they, and all the major brand, Taiwan major brands, uh, well known in, on the mainland were, were, uh, affected by this decree. And I, you know, the whole, whole orchestration on, um, China side is to show the people of Taiwan taking the U.S. side it's going to be very damaging, and it's not going to help them in one bit. And the fact that during all this military exercise, and, and there are seven zones of military exercise all around the island of Taiwan, all across the mid-straight line, and, uh, and, and sh- you know, shoot live fire shooting very close to the shore of Taiwan, it's let the people of Taiwan know that, they're not in a secure situation. Pelosi's visit has increased the insecurity, not the security, because up to now it's been peaceful, it's been quiet, they've been doing flourishing trade across the strait. And when they did the live fire demonstration, the U.S. Navy backed off, and the South Korea and Japan did they come to the, come anywhere close to helping the helping the Taiwan to try to try to um, stand off against the PLA? The answer is no, zero, nothing. So very, very clearly, China promised to take a firm stand, and we are now seeing the consequences of the first, first stand, firm stand that they're, you know, they're taking. So the only winner, as another commentator from Taiwan observed, is that the only winner so far is Pelosi because Pelosi got to play democracy tourists at the expense of Taiwan, at the expense of American people, and the American at the expense of any prospect of peace going forward. And you have a piece in Asia Times, what has, quote, champion of democracy, end quote, rot. And you, in your very clear articulation, have touched on a number of points that you write about and elaborate on in your piece. When the reader is done with your very, very good piece, what do you want them to walk away from your piece having a better understanding of? Well, I I think one of the very important points is that Pelosi has been in Congress for well over 30-some years, and, and she positioned herself as a human rights and democracy uh, champion, but she hasn't done anything in terms of democracy or human rights at home. During her 30-some years representing San Francisco, which is her district, San Francisco has been going downhill visibly. It is now the worst homeless problem city in the whole country. And, of course, probably in the whole uh, developed, country, developed countries of the world. You know, you can't go to San Francisco without seeing homeless people sleeping in the doorway, defecating in the gutter, going through garbage for something edible. It's a disgrace, and it's, it's gotten worse and worse. So what has she done for human rights in San Francisco? I don't see anything happening. What has she done for democracy in the United States? Now, since she's been in Congress and now House Speaker, I haven't seen anything that borders on freedom, open elections, 
democracy for all the people, including the poor. Nothing. Instead, we have trying to deny people from voting. We have clearly leaders violating the Constitution and getting away with it. And now her husband apparently is being accused of inside trading, and we'll see how that comes out. But, But she has been really no credit to the United States, but she's been widely known as her defender of China's human rights by protesting the Tiananmen incident two years after when she was actually a guest of the PRC government. Let me ask you about this. If the U.S. vassals, South Korea, if their leader is kind of hiding from Pelosi and hiding from the U.S. after this, you know, I would imagine the countries that the U.S. was courting in the Asia in the past have all, I mean, that is uh, pretty much gone. Well, yeah. Well, South Korea President Yoon was uh, barely won the election. And he started out by saying, I'm standing with the United States. I'm pro whatever U.S. stands for. You know, I'm in favor of the, our, the U.S. position in Ukraine, in Taiwan, and so on and so forth. In the meantime, his popularity just plummeted. It fell right out of the, fell off the cliff. And I think he's finally getting the message and understanding that the most important bilateral relationship for him is the relationship with China. Mm. China has the economic strength to help his economy. China can help in terms of resolving the dispute between him, the South Korea, and the North Korea. You know, and even the United States recognize that they need China to solve some of these problems. So I, I think he's getting wiser. Uh, it may be, I don't know if it's too late for him, but at least he's turning around and seeing the light. Did you hear or read reports that one of the motivations behind her going to Taiwan was her own chip investments? Well, I, I hadn't heard that. Okay. But I'm not surprised because in that group picture that she stands with uh, uh, um, with uh, Tsai Ing-wen, the two major figures next to it was Morris Chang, the former founder of TSMC, and, and Mr. Liu, something or other, the current chairman and CEO of TSMC. So that, that kind of confirms what you said. George Koo, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, gentlemen. Nice talking to you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Events in Karabakh evoke questions about Russian peacekeepers' activity. The Armenia's prime minister stressed that the Russian peacekeepers' presence in Nagorno-Karabakh was a key factor for maintaining the Armenians' security. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Shloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour. 
So before we get to Nargarno-Karabakh, WNBA star Brittany Griner today was sentenced to nine and a half years in a Russian jail for drug smuggling. Your thoughts on this, I would say that it has reached the point now where we will expect to see a prisoner swap at some point in the fairly near future. Your thoughts, Mark Schloboda? Yeah, actually, uh, Griner was sentenced to nine years okay. uh, in a Russian prison. The prosecution had asked for nine and a half years. I guess that half a year off is the judge's idea of leniency or, or something of time, the sort. Time served. It's, uh, yeah, okay. So um, here's the deal. I mean, she was going through a, a Russian airport with hashish oil vape cartridges in her luggage. Uh, after the uh, the U.S. witch hunt against Russian Olympo- Olympic athletes uh, over um, very spurious drug charges, the Russian government regarded this as a as a gift that fell to in, in into its lap and has perhaps thrown the book at Griner uh, to a more substantial degree than was um, technically necessary, although it must be said that um, those who are not Olympic athletes in the U.S. who fall, uh, you know, a fall of U.S. marijuana laws often receive just as severe or, or even worse sentences themselves, depending on the particular jurisdiction. Uh, but it seems obvious that this sentencing is probably actually a prelude to her being transferred the the US side has put forward an offer of training trading Griner and uh, Paul Whelan, an American former Marine who was convicted of espionage charges in Russia in return for the uh, Russian businessman and arms trader Victor Bout, who was serving 25 years in a U.S. prison for arms dealing after uh, being um, grabbed uh, in in Asia and and uh, handed over to the United States, um, Russia has returned a counteroffer, saying they they don't want a two for one; they want a two for two deal. And as far as I understand, they're still on negotiation. But it seems fairly likely that they would have wanted her sentenced before they make uh, any trade for a sense of of equity. Uh, if nothing else. I think the sentence is a little severe for what she is charged for. As far as I'm concerned, she probably could have gotten off with uh, maybe some community service or something of the sort, if not for the international tensions between the two countries and and the, the previous bout of witch hunting against Russian Olympic athletes. But it is what it is. But I have little doubt that she will not serve nine years in a Russian prison and she will be traded back soon. Well, since she is a WNBA player, they could offer like a second round pick and a prisoner to be named later. So that's an op- that's an, an option. That's funny. But at any rate, that's, uh, Mark, that's funny. That's stuff. good. That 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 yeah. was good. That, that, you should take it on the road. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here all week, folks. Tip tip your yeah. waiters. Make sure you tip your waiters. But important stuff. Nagorno Karabakh, and I thought it was important since this article was in TASS talking about the Russian peacekeepers. You know, it seems dangerous to me that the Nagorno Karabakh area, that there is some violence going on there, and there are Russian peacekeepers in the area that they could be in danger. Is this 
just local or do you think that there are nefarious entities that are you know behind this trying to flare up troubles mark yeah i mean there could be i mean both the us and turkey uh you know have a excuses for prodding armenia or sorry azerbaijan to take some action to exploit the situation on the other hand azerbaijan is perfectly capable of doing it uh itself uh even without turkish or or us prodding they see that russia is militarily occupied in ukraine and uh, they think that they can push the Russian peacekeepers uh, a bit on the implementation of the ceasefire agreement. It has to be said that both Armenia and Azerbaijan are accusing each other of not fully living up to the rather, you know, extensive grand bargain ceasefire agreement that saw an end to the 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 44-day conflict in 2020. And both have some fair points. Um, Azerbaijan certainly has been going after Armenian churches uh, um, and and effectively seizing them and and rebranding them, uh, if you will, um, which is is certainly a cultural crime, if nothing else. And Azerbaijan is complaining about Armenia dragging their heels on the agreement of uh, a road uh, that would connect. Nagorno-Karabakh to Armenia by a different route than the current Lachin corridor. They're trying to push them on that. There is also the deal of the trade corridor that Armenia was forced to agree to between uh, the two different parts of Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is actually uh, a kind of a div territorially divided nation with a stretch of Armenia going through it. Armenia had to agree to a trade corridor um, uh, connecting those two parts and also, by the way, connecting mainland Azerbaijan uh, with Turkey. Uh, which is a big uh, advantage for them in terms of trade uh, in the re and influence in the region as well. So they both do actually do have some legitimate grants. Neither one of them are completely living up to the ceasefire agreement. And I think that uh, uh, Azerbaijan in particular will continue uh, to, to see how far they can push the Russian peacekeepers, create a few little facts on the, on the ground, but I do not expect a full collapse of the ceasefire agreement. It's too, too advantageous to both sides uh, at this point, uh, Armenia being the, the military underpower in this situation and also having a president who is well-known, Pashinyan Prime sorry, Prime Minister, who wanted to um, uh, create closer ties with the West and pull away from Russia, but found himself uh, in a, well, a geopolitical reality where Russia is Armenia's only guarantor against a much uh, richer and more, more militarily powerful Azerbaijan now, and has been forced to give up large amounts of territory that they seized from Azerbaijan and de facto controlled uh, since the 1990s. So what you've just said, does that explain Pashinyan's comments basically complimenting and thanking Russia for the work that the peacekeepers have done and the fact that I think he said that Russia has played a key role in protecting Armenians? Yeah, his his words were actually double-edged. Okay. And he was both complimenting them and criticizing them at the exact same time because says he also said that um, 
that uh, the work of those peacekeepers needs to be more clearly defined, basically, that the, he also accused them of not doing their job. <laughs> I missed that. Um, okay. That the, that they should have taken action to prevent this type of thing across uh, the agreed upon, uh, you know, um, ceasefire line, as it were. So he was he was kind of double edging his words there, uh, implying that they're not fully living up to their mandate as well. But acknowledging that Armenia has no better option than those peacekeepers, whatever they're doing. So let me ask you one more follow up then on that. And that is, we were talking about this in 2020, and we spent a lot of time talking with you about this when it was ongoing. Why now and why this? Is there a larger geopolitical strategy here, or is this just one of those types of problems that flares up in areas of contention such as this? Yeah, I, I think it, part of it is is partly routine, right? There are always in such ethnically and territorially heated ceasefires there are always um, violations of of passion there are violations of intent to create small new facts on the ground and the like uh, at the same time I think that the, the now question is best answered by um, are simply that Azerbaijan sees Russia uh, and Russian peacekeepers, their focus distracted by the conflict in Ukraine, and they're seeking to exploit this situation to see exactly how far they can push those Russian peacekeepers and create a few new little of those facts on the ground. Another settlement, another height there falling uh, you know, uh, permanently into Azerbaijan's side will still be seen as as uh, a victory in Baku. What about Kosovo, Mark? What's happening there? It seems to me kind of petty to have, you know, almost a war over the issue of license plates and IDs and things of that nature. And again, it seems like this is another, to me, a more pronounced instance in which there, you know, I would think NATO, et cetera, is trying to, you know, kind of throw more elbows at Russia and distract them. Sure. I mean, the, the, I don't think it's any coincidence that the leadership of the Kosovo NATO protectorate um, still holdovers from the terrorist Kosovo Liberation Army met with the U.S. Secretary of State, uh, Andy Blinken, in the week uh, preceding. Uh, you know, uh, this move by Pristina to implement this new law. The, the fact of the matter is that Serbia does not recognize um, Kosovo as independent and neither should it, it should be said does half the world. Half the world that aligns with the U.S. does and half the world that uh, that doesn't, uh, including Russia and China and India, do not uh, see Kosovo as an independent nation. And the Serb minority in northern Kosovo, um, you know, reject the idea that they should have documents, license plates, you know, the, the daily facts of life um, uh, given to them and under the control of the uh, U.S., the NATO-backed regime in Pristina. Um, the question of why after 
uh, a year's delay Pristina chose to implement it. Now I think it's at U.S. urging. U.S. is is basically taking a stick and trying to stir up as many little brush fires in areas of tension, international tension around Russia as they can. And there is always a a degree of pro-Russian sentiment in Serbia and, of course, among the Serb minority in Kosovo that, that Russia is supposed to do something to protect them, even though it can actually very do very little except its diplomatic clout in the UN at this case because Serbia is landlocked and stuck in the middle of the EU. So there's very little, you know, that they could do militarily. Uh, But I think it's also a degree of punishment against the government in Serbia for refusing to agree um, to uh, implement uh, Western sanctions against Russia and going even further and signing new gas deals with Russia. We have just one minute left and we didn't throw this to you, but I know you can answer it. U.S. Congress has voted to approve Finland and Sweden going into NATO. Where are we because uh, Turkey has said we're not going to do that. Is that still a possibility or do you think Erdogan's going to hold fast on his opposition? We got 30 seconds. Yeah, I think Erdogan is going to hold fast until he gets more of what he wants under the table from NATO to let Finland and Sweden in. I think Finland and Sweden will join, and it will be sooner rather than later. But Erdogan hasn't exploited the situation for everything that he wants uh, from NATO quite yet. Mark Schlaboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis as always, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. TASS reports Beijing cancels meeting between top diplomats of China and Japan over the G7 statement on Taiwan. Beijing has canceled a bilateral meeting between the Chinese and the Japanese foreign ministers in Phnom Penh over a G7 joint statement on Taiwan. This is according to a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson. What signals does this send? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, Dr. Linwood Tawheed. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. I think there are those who looked at the very bellicose comments made by Chinese officials before Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, and then they breathed a sigh of relief when it went through without incident. And I was saying then in Garland, we were saying, you know, folks, don't fall into a false sense of security. Don't measure China's behavior by U.S. standards. So with the encirclement of Taiwan by the Chinese Navy, we've got live fire exercises. And now this, China has a lot of cards to play. Your thoughts? Uh, yes, I, I agree that uh, the response that was I, I, uh, was uh, maybe anticipated of China going over the edge and and perhaps even invading Taiwan wasn't wasn't in China China's interest to do that 
But on the other hand, with the live fire exercises and the effective blockade by by having those exercises encircling the island, uh, China is certainly demonstrating what they're what they're capable of. They they've moved into those positions very quickly. It would be before any other um, American U.S. led military action could respond. And uh, they're 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 in, they're indicating that they're intending to keep this up. That this is not a one time thing. And so there certainly has been a response, but it's but it's a response out in international water that uh, is not um, uh, violating any international law. Uh, this statement by the G7 that uh, Japan was a part of uh, had uh, uh, phases like uh, the rules-based international order that uh, that the uh, um, G7 is is committed to that. Of course, that's, that rules-based international order is something that came out of the, the mouth of, um, of uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. As opposed to the laws-based international order, uh, there are sets of international laws uh, that, that govern relationships between countries. The rules-based is it's just something made up by the U.S., uh, and they, 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 get to, they get to make the rules. And so China is, of course, objecting to the idea that that uh, the U.S. makes the rules instead of international communities making laws, uh, Japan signed on to that, and so the meeting was canceled. As a result of that, uh, the, the the statement also indicated uh, said that there were threatening actions by China, and then we have the Pelosi visit. All of this in terms of perhaps a provocation uh, for China to do something more drastic. I, I I don't know what the U.S. response would be if China did something more drastic. Uh, but but China did not go that far. Something just popped up that I just saw on Twitter and I looked at it. Here's, I think, of an example of what we're looking to come. Apparently, there's a battery company called Contemporary Amperex Technology Limited. They were planning on building a $5 billion battery plant in the United States to supply batteries to Tesla and Ford and someone else. Mm-hmm. And they're basically saying, insiders said that, the Taiwan visit of Pelosi, Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, is the reason that they've announced they're going to delay their decision on building that. And I think that also is the kind of things we're we're going to see for two reasons, A, as a response, but B, because they probably are starting to say, look, we can't do business with these people because at some point, if it gets to the point of sanctions, they're going to steal our stuff, Dr. Tawheed. Well, yeah, I mean, the economic fallout is uh, between um, with antagonism between China and and, and uh, the U.S. is, I think, going to be the most dramatic thing that happens. Um, I, I don't see just outright military confrontation unless unless the neocons are really, really crazy, which which could be the case. But but uh, China is a, a major supplier or manufacturer of goods for the U.S., uh, it has shown over the, the COVID crisis that it's willing to actually shut down its economy and and not have those relationships with, with the U.S. However, if, if they were to shut down um, uh, uh, going going forward as a result of the in, intense uh, intensification of, 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 of relationships, uh, the U.S. is going to be the most hurt in that and most damaged in that in that process. Uh, and, and what we see is, you know, we have um, uh, various industries in the U.S., various sectors, one of which, if you divide it into the military sector, the, the weapons manufacturers, and then everything else. 
weapons manufacturers, of course, are 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 helped uh, profits increase as a result of war, but but all other industries are hurt in that process, and so the the U.S. in this relationship with China, as as antagonisms grow, has to decide whether or not they want to continue to do business and therefore have peace, or that business is going to suffer which will, will hurt um, uh, workers in the, in the U.S. And, and also the profits of various uh, other kinds of entities. The task reports the Bank of Russia considers feasible to convert state companies' funds from dollars and euro. The Bank of Russia believes that it is reasonable to convert accumulated funds of state-owned companies to different currencies. Quote, it is feasible for non-financial organizations to convert accumulated funds and currencies of unfriendly states to other currencies. The release of relevant directives by the Russian government will be justified in respect of companies with the government participation. This is from the central bank. Your thoughts on this, is this another salvo similar to the withdrawal or the temporary hold on building the battery plant? Well, I think the the term unfriendly um, um, states was a term that was also used when when, uh, the Russians decided that they would only accept rubles for gas mm-hmm. uh, that was just to unfriendly states. So I think this is a continuation of that kind of, of uh, uh, monetary maneuver. Uh, what it will do economically is increase the supply of dollars and euros because they won't be going to Russia, uh, which, which by itself increasing the supply lowers the, the, the value of those currencies. It will also increase the demand for rubles, uh, because there will be a conversion of, of, of dollars and euros into rubles. Or uh, there's something else interesting in this. It, it doesn't say to, uh, to convert into rubles. It says or other currencies, mm-hmm. which, 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 which means that uh, there could be a conversion of dollars and euros into rupees, the, the Indian currency, mm-hmm. or into yuan, the Chinese currency. They're not limiting that conversion just to rubles. Which, which actually increases the demand for those currencies and improves the economies of those currencies. And, and so, you know, we, we should have expected that uh, dollars and in, in euros would eventually be converted because uh, the Russians know that if they have their money in dollars, uh, their, their reserves in dollars and rubles, that the U.S. will seize uh, them. And, and, and will seize them. So, so this is not unexpected. What is, I think, interesting is that they're, they're doing uh, essentially currency swaps or going to do currency swaps into other currencies, therefore kind of sealing their relationship with, with non-Russian uh, uh, um, countries. Do you think this is also something to make like BRICS and the SCO more attractive where countries can say, you know, we can come in there and, you know, Russia, the ruble is strong now. It's recognized as a, as a you know, I wouldn't say invulnerable currency, but certainly a very resilient, shall we say, one of the most resilient in the world because of the commodities behind it. This is an attraction to help build these economic blocks. What are your thoughts? Yes, I, I think the, the, the just the idea of, of expanding the BRICS, right, which is um, um, uh, Brazil, Russia, uh, India, China, and South Africa, that, 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 that group has already been expanded. We don't have an acronym for it, but there, there are many other countries that have joined that relationship. And the idea of having currency swaps, 
uh, actually increases the attractiveness of, of being a part of that, that organization, uh, part of that union, because uh, a country, let's say India, uh, doesn't have to get rubles in order to trade with, with Russia. They can trade in their own currency, which, of course, they can create uh, on their own. And so that actually gives more autonomy and more more uh, independence to the countries that would be joined this union, which makes it very much more attractive than to have to get dollars or euros uh, and uh, you know make your your own currency subservient to the to the dollar or euro order. Uh, and so that is uh, that's uh, I guess a new way of of doing these uh, these um, uh, intercountry monetary relationships. That, that's coming out of this process of de-dollarization as the dollar and euro become less important. Individual countries, their own countries' currencies also now become important. And if those countries are backed by the commodities that those countries, the, 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 the reserves, the resources that those countries can bring, then uh, these countries are more in control of the value of their own currency as opposed to being subservient. So I think that is a, a, a very um, um, it's going to be a very interesting development. The Financial Times reports the Bank of England raises rates sharply and warns of 13% inflation by the end of the year. They face a protracted recession and the worst squeezing in living standards in more than 60 years after the Bank of England raised interest rates sharply and forecast inflation that would hit 13% by the end of the year. You take that and, of course, some of that or a lot of that is driven by gas prices, but you now then also have the pending shortage. Mm-hmm. Not only is this a problem for the common folks in the UK, but politically, as we have been talking about, this is going to be catastrophic. Yes, the UK is in a, in a process of a change, an essential change in government, at least a change in leadership in government. So it's at an uh, unstable period right now. I think what was interesting is that this half a percent increase was was uh, described as dramatically increased, whereas in the U.S. the Federal Reserve uh, had a a, a three quarter point seven five percent increase, even even a, a larger increase. And and I see the kind of the the uh, the timidness in in, in this uh, in the Bank of England increase as an indication that they understand that the political situation in in England is much more volatile than it is in the U.S., that if they increase too quickly, then uh, there there will be, uh, in this uh, change of government, there, there may even be a change of government from, from the Tories to, to, to Labor. Uh, and, and so they're trying not to provoke that. However, they're projecting, what they're projecting is that their, their uh, interest rate increases will be ineffective because they're projecting a greater than 13% inflation rate uh, which, which uh, you know, they have to know that if they think this works, increasing uh, interest rates will will bring down inflation, that they, they have to go much bigger than this. The fact that they're not going bigger, I think, is an indication that they realize how fragile uh, the uh, the government system is. Uh, this is also, of course, a fallout from Brexit, uh, the fact that when, when uh, the England removed itself from the European Union, it actually removed itself from, from uh, kind of a buffer if you will, for trade, uh, it's kind of, it's an island on its on its own, literally, and uh, it, uh, it it's it's actually shrunk its economy. 
Uh, not that the EU is going to, going to do well. They'll do a little better. They'll ha- they'll have 11 percent inflation instead of 13 percent inflation, and and that inflation, in fact, maybe maybe much higher. But I suspect that uh, the recession uh, that's going to be hit hard in the UK is going to end up with uh, labor union strikes and other kinds of volatility. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Reuters has a piece by Luke Cohen entitled, Analysis Beyond Yachts and Planes, U.S. Turns to Foreign Agent Laws to Curb Russian Influence. In five months since the U.S. Department of Justice launched a task force to seize Russian oligarchs' assets to pressure Moscow over its invasion of Ukraine, prosecutors also have targeted something less tangible, Russia's influence. Well, what is the government really targeting? Influence or a different narrative based in fact? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So Cohen continues, the Justice Department has broadly ramped up enforcement of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, or FARA, and a related law known by its code number 951. Dr. Horn, to me, what we're really seeing here is not spy hunting, but narrative and truth squashing, and the government is using very powerful and dangerous tools to squash the dissemination of valid information. It's almost like a nuclear info war. Your thoughts, sir? Well, as we both know, the subtext of our discussion is what unfolded in St. Louis, Missouri, and St. Petersburg, Florida, just a few days ago, when the African People's Socialist Party and their affiliate, the Ahuru Movement, were routed and rousted in the dark days of the dark time of the morning with drones, with battering rams, with flash grenades, with handcuffs, even though they were not charged with crimes, although they are supposedly tied to sources and forces in Moscow. And I think it's important for us to recognize that going forward, it will not be accidental if black people in particular are being subjected to this kind of harassment, because we recognize that approximately 70 odd years ago, when W.E.B. Du Bois, the father of Pan-Africanism, a founder of the NAACP, when he was 83 years old in 1951, he was put on trial, handcuffed, and barely escaped spending his declining years in prison 
precisely because it was said in federal court that he was the agent of a foreign power. That is to say that he was an agent of Moscow. Why? Because he thought that nuclear weapons should be abolished and banned and outlawed. And Moscow thought that nuclear weapons should be banished, outlawed, and banned. And therefore, ipso facto, that meant that Mr. Du- Dr. Du Bois was an agent of Moscow. Now, we're seeing a recrudescence of those bad old days. And I think it's more important than ever for you to get your crack news team on the case, on the story, and solicit opinions from the Congressional Black Caucus, from the NAACP leadership, from Reverend Al Sharpton, with regard specifically to their opinion on what happened to the African People's Socialist Party, because I dare say that what the U.S. government is attempting as we speak is trying to restrict and constrict ideological space. And whenever that happens, that's bad news for this oppressed community, speaking of the black American community. And I should also say that one of the reasons why the black American community will be particularly susceptible to this kind of outrage is that there is a structural flaw in U.S. culture and society that's barely acknowledged and recognized. That structural flaw being that the United States was basically founded as a white supremacist state with the idea that Africans would be enslaved forevermore. By dint of changes in the international climate and our own militant and fierce struggle, we were able to change that particular noxious equation But still hanging fire is this idea that this enslaved population and therefore their descendants will continue to ally with the real and imagined antagonists of Washington in order to gain a measure of freedom. And certainly there is evidence to suggest that that is the case. We've talked on these airwaves more than once about what happened in August 1814 when the Redcoats invaded Washington, D.C., assisted by enslaved Africans, torched the town, sent James Madison and his garrulous spouse, Dolly, fleeing into the streets, one step ahead of the posse, and then the black Americans getting on British ships and sailing to freedom in Trinidad and Tobago. You basically had a replay of that particular scenario uh, ever since. And I'm afraid to say that even though there are those in our community and in our leadership who may be unfamiliar with this history, I guarantee you that at the highest reaches of the Justice Department and the White House, they are certainly familiar with this history and they do not want to see a replay of August 1814. Dr. Horn, another thing I'd like to get you to comment on is the issue of the concept. There's like a foundational racist concept here. And it's that, you know, black people have an intellectual inferiority and it stops us from understanding our issues and advocating against any oppression or things that we feel are unfair. Therefore, here's the term that comes in, outside agitators. 
whether it's Bull Connor saying there's outside agitators from the north, or now, whether it's the Biden administration or the, the FBI, forget what administration it is, saying there's outside agitators from Russia or whatever, it gets back to black people aren't smart enough to understand and advocate. And if not for some white puppeteer from in this instance, Russia, they wouldn't be saying that things aren't so great for them and they have to push back, Dr. Horn. Well, that's obviously a fictional conceit. On the one hand, it's designed to throw dust in the eyes of our community, to make our community feel inferior, to make our community feel that it does not understand the lessons of history. And on the other hand, it's a kind of comfort food for the U.S. ruling elite. Because if they can convince themselves that black people are not able to see that they're being mistreated, then perhaps black people will not see that they're being mistreated, and therefore the elites can sleep well at night, as opposed to the times of slavery, when many of them had to sleep with one eye open for fear of an enslaved person sneaking into the bedroom and cutting them a new smile from one side of their throat to the other. And so we really need to uh, disabuse ourselves of those sorts of fictional conceits because they never held water. They certainly hold little or no water today. And all it really serves to do is create a more confused situation than would otherwise exist. You mentioned some of the other organizations that we need to hear from. You mentioned the NAACP and you mentioned some others. And as you were going through that list, it made me think, well, we won't hear from them if we have, for example, Karen Bass sitting on the board of the National Endowment for Democracy. We've got Bakari Sellers carrying the water for the Urban Empowerment Action Pack. We've got Hakeem Jeffries carrying the water for Team Blue. We got Gregory Meeks putting through legislation condemning African countries for defending themselves on the international stage. So, We've got all of these individuals that are supposed to be kinfolk, but as they say, our skinfolk ain't always our kinfolk, not really operating in the best interest, really, of democracy. Well, I understand your point. I take your point. But in my estimation, it really argues for even more pressure on these forces, because there are many in our community who are well aware of what's going on. They're well aware of the fact that the Bakari Sellers in Detroit was campaigning against our interests, that he was on all fours with the Israeli lobby, I'm afraid to say. But I think there are also people in our community who recognize the danger and peril we all face because of the constriction or restriction of ideological space. We find that U.S. imperialism has stumbled into a real dilemma. On the one hand, it has negative relations with Moscow. On the other, in light of the trip of Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan, relations with the People's Republic of China are headed south. We already see that reflected in terms of the People's Bank of China uh, not buying as many U.S. Treasury bills, which, if they continue in that pace, will force Washington to raise taxes in order to keep the U.S. government afloat. We see that China is going to be curtailing commodity purchases of, seed, of soybeans from Midwestern farmers, which could have negative impact on Mr. Biden and the midterm congressional elections. And so the stakes are rather grim right now, 
And I did not even mention the fact that Washington is apparently aware of this dilemma, which is one of the reasons why they sent uh, Iran nuclear negotiator Robert Malley uh, jetting across the Atlantic to Vienna to resume talks with the Iranians, because they did not want a three-cornered uh, antagonist to face. That is to say, not only Moscow and Beijing, but Tehran at the same time, which, of course, are all grouped together as we speak in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And we all know that the Europeans are becoming ever more nervous about being yoked to the fate and whimsical fortunes of Washington, which is causing Germany to be faced with this dilemma of free, having many other people freeze in the dark because of a tailing of natural gas supplies and energy supplies from Moscow. So I think in light of the dire nature of the crisis that we face, uh, there is no time like the present to pressure those individuals and organizations that you just mentioned, because if we don't, if we don't get the captains at the wheel of this ship of fools to turn this vessel around, uh, we're all going to be headed for that iceberg and perishing simultaneously. Dr. Horn, another thing about going after black activists in particular is that, and, and I think this is very dangerous, the black, and I've used this word guardedly, struggle, the black push for economic and social equality is portrayed as fundamentally un-American and can be disqualified, period. So now anyone who's standing up saying, you know, perhaps things are unfair, that it's viewed, well, that's un-American. We better look into that. And I think that's very dangerous. Your thoughts? And then you tie it to Russia, and that's a force multiplier. Well, it certainly is. But once again, unless you understand the history of this country, you want to understand uh, what uh, Mr. Nixon just outlined. Uh, that is to say, uh, routinely in this country, we are told that the so-called founding fathers, that their struggle was just, even though it led to massive bloodshed, even though fundamentally it was breaking the law, that is to say the law imposed by London, but that's celebrated every July 4th. But the folks who rule this country have difficulty in coming to grips with the fact that black people's struggle should be saluted because it, too, is seeking freedom and justice. But because of that conundrum that I mentioned a moment or two ago, that we were destined, according to these same fabled founding fathers, to be enslaved forevermore. And so, therefore, by its very nature, our struggle would be ruled and deemed illegitimate until we can crack that equation that I've just mentioned two seconds ago. I think we're always going to be faced with this dilemma of having people such as in the Uhuru movement and the African People's Socialist Party in St. Louis, Missouri, and St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, being subjected to persecution and harassment and really driven in many ways to the brink of death. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Common Dreams has a piece entitled, Progressives See Midterm Hopes Rise on Kansas Voters' Defense of Abortion Rights. Is this really as progressive of a sign as the Democrats are trying to make it? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. She's the principal and founder of TML Communications, and she's a business columnist at Metro Philly, Teresa Lundy. As always, Teresa, welcome back. Happy to be here. Thank you. So some are saying voters in Kansas just struck a blow to the Republican anti-choice movement. Now millions of people are counting on us to keep this momentum going because without question, abortion rights are on the ballot. So that's one thought. But with Joe Biden's approval rating for his sixth quarter in office being the lowest of any president in the modern era, Gallup has him at 38% approval rating, which is a drop from 41% last month. And with the real clear politics average for Congress's approval being 19.6 positive versus 71% negative, is defense of a woman's right to choose going to be that much of a force multiplier, particularly for the Democrats? I have to say it will be. You know, women have been making it very clear for decades that their voice matters, their bodies matter, and they are tired of men on the Supreme Court voting uh, against women's health. So I think we are seeing, you know, outside of um, the policy that has been going through uh, on the Supreme Court level about um, abortions is that we are now seeing advocacy groups, we're seeing corporations and individuals of influence now screaming to the hill saying that November is going to be um, a, you know, voter, voter lit type of legislation. And so um, I think we will be seeing, obviously, when early voting in a lot of these states is going to be a huge factor. Um, and we, of course, since uh, we had the pandemic, we got uh, used to a lot of the mail-in ballot system. So um, I'm sure, you know, that those numbers will be coming in soon once that operation is uh, beginning. But at the end of the day, we are still seeing, you know, the increase of um, women and men voices and, you know, uh, binary voices um, on this issue. And yes, it will directly affect the polls. So, Teresa, I look at it differently. I'm going to give you a uh, opposing view and get your thoughts. I see something different. Here's what I think. If you look at the polls, even in the Republican Party, there is a percentage of the Republican Party that's staunchly anti-abortion, but there is a percentage of the Republican Party, a large percentage of it, not maybe not the majority, but a large percentage that want women to have the right to choose. So what I think is, I think that this reflects that even amongst Republicans, there's still a lot of women who don't want to eliminate the right to choose. That being said, two things. I don't think those Republican women are going to come over and vote for Democrats. But I do think if you say, hey, are you going to vote for a right to choose? They're going to do it on given that opportunity. And I also think, see, when the Democrats say, Okay, a woman's right to choose is on the ballot. They have to also say, okay, that's metaphorical. It sounds great. 
What does that mean? Well, that means that if we gain power, we will do something that we're not going to do now. And they haven't articulated what that is. So I think that in order to you can say it's on the ballot, but behind saying it on the ballot, you have to articulate a policy that says it's on the ballot. Because if we maintain our majority or get more, we will do X. So far, they haven't done that. And I don't see something that they could do different than they're doing now. I know that's a lot, but you're a smart person. Make sense out of that, Teresa Lundy. You know, I think you're right, but here's, look, I I think folks are tired of uh, Democrats even, you know, kind of even playing that game of, look, you know, it's on the ballot and and we're going to make these promises and we're not going to keep these promises. And thus, we go back to, you know, uh, individual voters that are saying, we do not trust the process. We don't trust government. We don't... uh, you know, trust that our vote actually matters. So I think Democrats are actually doing the right pace of messaging by saying it's on the ballot, which means we need you to get to the polls. We need you to vote. And that's what I really think is the the message here. Um, And, of course, the issue of abortion rights, equality, the, the whole justice system really is on the ballot for November, depending on what type of candidate you have in your elected state. So, you know, there's an opportunity where, um, you know, Democrats could go a little further and talk about, well, you know, um, we could, you know, once once we, you know, get the electoral um, votes in and we get, you know, that elected and we assume power of the Senate, then, yes, we can do more and we can go further. But I do think it's a little early because really we bar- Democrats barely have a plan of action now. Uh, past November, but right now it's to get to November. So I, I really don't want them to do any more steps, but to make sure people come out and actually vote um, to their livelihood. So following what you've just said and following up on Garland's question, two points. One, on the campaign trail, Joe Biden talked about Roe v. Wade and he rallied the troops around Roe v. Wade. Then he got elected and really didn't seem to do anything with it, particularly pushing Congress to do something because many analysts said it was more important. That issue was more important to the Democrats as a campaign issue than they felt the necessity to pass legislation to codify it. So that's one point. So to that, it's on the ballot issue. And to Garland's earlier point, you say it's on the ballot, but then what do you do? They didn't do anything. So that's one point. The other point to your answering my initial question, when we looked at some of the earlier midterm elections, like in Virginia with Yunkin, you had moderate suburban white women who had voted for Joe Biden in many of these states, they crossed over and voted for people like Yunkin when they started talking about critical race theory and school choice and all that kind of stuff. So do you see this issue bringing a lot of those women back into the Democratic fold? It absolutely should. So part of it is, you know, we, again, we're all coming out of a pandemic. You know, we're now dealing with new viruses every day. And people are looking for hope. They're looking for opportunity and they're looking for those individuals with fresh ideas and new visions. And so I do think it is going to not only bring them to the polls, but also encourage others to, as people have had time during the pandemic, 
to think about some of the issues of concern in their lives. So, I, you know, things have changed since, you know, we had our last election. This midterm election is not only going to turn out a base of, you know, uh, white women, black women, Latinx, LGBTQIA, you know, police, um, so many variations of so many issues that we have, but it's also going to bring an opportunity to um, for for us to see what these numbers look like now that we've had some time to focus on the last two years on what we don't want in our government. There's another interesting article. Primary results reinforce Trump's power over GOP. Let me throw something at you. You know, I'm an, I'm a, I was a Democrat most of my life, but I'm an independent now, a real lefty. But here are my thoughts. And I would like to see what you think about it. I believe the Democratic Party now and the media puts an over and maybe even an unhealthy emphasis on Trump to the point where it's like, OK, you know, everything that happens, you know, we had bad weather. Well, how do we look at that through the lens of Trump? I think it's an error. I mean, if Trump was to get swallowed by a bear tomorrow and there's no more Trump, I feel like the Democratic Party wouldn't have a context or the media wouldn't have a context through which to discuss politics. And I think it takes us away from the context of policy. Well, these people are winning because of this, that or that. And you talk about what's going on economically or foreign policy and all of these policies things. And instead, I think it's an unhealthy, how does this affect Trump? How does Trump affect this? What about the lens of Trump? What are your thoughts? I think we obviously don't forget about the lens of Trump. I think we, um, as Democrats and as Republicans and independents, are um, thinking holistically about what it means if we had another two years of Trump and his colleagues. Um, and I think people, you know, it doesn't matter what party you're in. I think people are going to revisit what the last four years were like. Um, and, and they're really going to be a little bit more conscious. Listen, Democrats have been doing a, uh, incredible job, um, ensuring that Trump's, uh, bad behavior on January 6th, where we lost lives, where, you know, we've started to see on social that there's been an uptick in hate. Um, that they're going to then try something different and uh, vote accordingly. So I don't necessarily feel that, you know, um, Trump's presidential candidate is not as huge because we already know what to expect. But on the other hand, when we have Michael Pence, you know, who was kind of like the silent thinker and overall, you know, kind of like the good, do- good doer under the Trump administration, um, I think that is going to give them a run for their money. So I think, you know, we have those two um, forces that I think, you know, the Republicans are also going to have to struggle with, in addition to also finding that their talking points actually resonate with the American people. And following on Garland's point, there were two articles on the same issue. The Hill has a piece, Primary Results Reinforce Trump's Power Over GOP. Talk of former President Trump losing grip on the Republican Party may be overstated, as evidenced by Tuesday's primary results in states like Arizona and Michigan. Trump-backed candidates picked up wins in the Senate primary in Arizona, the gubernatorial primary in Michigan, and in the House and Secretary of State primaries. So you read that and you go, wow. Trump still got his hands on the game, and he's still controlling the outcome. Then you go to the Financial Times, and the Financial Times says, these Senate hopefuls won Trump's endorsement. Now they're struggling. Republican candidates handpicked by former president are polling poorly and running low on cash. Mehmet Oz, J.D. Vance, 
Herschel Walker, Blake Masters. So some of this really depends on which media source you turn to because the analysis or the narrative from that so-called analysis is going to slant a particular way. Yes, I think you're right. I think the Hill is going to do what the Hill does, right? Sometimes they're um, centered and sometimes they're just strictly to the right. So, <laughs> um, but I think there is, you know, some truth in that, right? Um, you know, they feel like, you know, that Trump has lost his grip on the GOP when clearly we've seen so many alliances and new organizations and new PACs that have been started underneath the umbrella of the GOP that is completely opposite of the messaging of Trump and his colleagues. But I think, you know, again, there's an opportunity to say, you know, Trump uh, has not lost a rhythm or a beat. Um, and then there's another wing where you could say Trump has absolutely lost it. And I think the opportunity here is uh, while they're going through the divide, since they were strongly uh, uh, collected during um, the first four years of this term and, you know, and all the Supreme Court nominations and all the wins that, you know, Trump decides to uh, talk about daily. But it now gives Democrats an opportunity to get on the same page, get on board and also start actually talking to the American people about why this makes sense. Um, that you need to vote in this uh, sort of way. Teresa Lundy, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. I appreciate you guys. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Crickle Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Andrew Koribko writes in Orinoco Tribune, Latin America's leading countries reaffirm their principled neutrality. For as different as Argentina, Brazil, and Mexico are, they're all united in the common cause of practicing principled neutrality towards the Ukraine conflict, which makes them Latin America's multipolar leaders. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace, an educator and contributing columnist for the Black Agenda Report. He serves on the executive committee of the U.S. Peace Council and leadership body of the U.S.-based United National Anti-War Coalition and the steering committee of the Black Is Back Coalition. Ajamu Baraka is always welcome back. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So Andrew Koribko writes, Argentina, Brazil, and Mexico, which are Latin America's leading countries, just reaffirmed their principled neutrality towards the Ukrainian conflict by refusing to join the U.S. in condemning Russia's ongoing special military operation there during the latest Conference of Defense Ministers of the Americas. This diplomatic development isn't just symbolic, but also politically substantive. It shows that the U.S. hegemony is rapidly declining since it can no longer impose its will onto those major countries. Your thoughts, Ajamu Baraka? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, power is a is a is a, a, a concept that is related to uh, to material factors, 
but it's also deeply related to non-material factors, the perception of, of standing, of prestige, um, and what we have seen over the last few months, and it's been really rapid, is a real decline in the perception of U.S. power. And part of the reason why we have that perception is because of the, the, the ineptitude of U.S. policymakers engaging in policies that only, uh, only result in exposing the limitations of their perceived power. You know, so you, you connect this latest uh, meeting that took place with the, with the defense ministers that rejected that the defense ministers had any real um, uh, uh, purview over this issue of this uh, war between the U.S. Uh, and, and Russia, in essence. You know, it's, it's the Ukrainian war, but it's basically between NATO forces and Russia. Um, and in doing that, they rejected any uh, posturing from the U.S. that, that says that uh, these nations in the global south, in this case in Latin America, have to take a position in alignment with that of the U.S. And so you you connect that with the summit of the Americas, when you connect that to uh, the inability of the U.S. to to generate the same kind of, of, of alignment with uh, states on the African continent, it is quite clear that we are in a different international space uh, here in, in August of 2022 than we were just five. I'm glad that you related this Latin American meeting to the summit of some of the Americas and, and that failure because if the summit of some of the Americas had been truly a democratic process, these are the types of exchanges and ideas that would have been flushed out at that meeting. And so the United States would not necessarily have wound up looking now as bad and as embarrassed as it is now. But to me, by prohibiting or excluding not only these countries, but this open kind of dialogue, the United States just winds up looking like a fool. You, you, you know, you're right. And, and, that, and that's what I mean by the sort of ineptitude of these, these uh, current policymakers within the U.S. Uh, government. Uh, I mean, the, the level of, of amateurism is I've never seen it before. I thought it was bad under the Obama administration, but it is even worse today. I mean, you know, so the very fact that they thought that they could uh, manipulate the summit of, the, of some of the Americas, uh, and, 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 and exclude uh, major states in the region, only expose their weakness. And the same thing happened with this manufactured crisis with, with Ukraine. The notion that, that uh, they were going to uh, combine their forces with NATO forces and, and the Russians would be defeated militarily, I mean, it was, it's, it was delusional. But that's where we are today with you know, the U.S. policymakers, and they have only exposed themselves and made themselves uh, perceived to be weaker. And I think they understand it, and that's why they're so concerned about these these exercises of of, of power with the uh, Pelosi visit, for example. But, you know, what's happening in our region, 
I think is very, very significant because we have a, have a real foundation for a, a new relationship between the states in South America and Central America and in the Caribbean and the United States uh, of America. You know, Ajamo, another thing I think that is important here that is critical to look at, you know, the U.S. empire and its vassals, because the leaders of Latin America and Africa are proving something, that they have some level of concern for their citizens. So even though they're getting pressure from the U.S. empire, heavy pressure from the U.S. empire, you know, with Representative Meek's bill and on and on, they are standing up saying it is in the best interest of our constituents to ensure that we have the energy and food supplies that we get from Russia, from China, whatever the case, while we watch the leaders in Europe, the so-called, you know, industrial, so-called first world countries, and you look at their leaders and they are condemning their constituents to abject poverty and to deindustrialization. And I think that is an important factor also. Your thoughts? Well, I think you're absolutely right. And that's why I, I kind of disagree a little a little bit with the, with the article that, uh, and the stance that the three, uh, nations took when they suggested that that the Ukrainian war was not really their business. Now, we understand what they really meant in the sense of, of sort of a new articulation of non-alignment um, because the Ukrainian war has had a profound impact on the lives uh, and nations of people here in the global south and in particular here in South America. So you're right, there's an, uh, an objective uh, a need there. Now for more militarism, but to to end this conflict and to to move back towards some kind of semblance of a commitment to the to international law, not the the rules based international order, because that's something that operates outside of international law, but to bring the United Nations back into the process, in particular, the role of the UN Security Council uh, is is very important, and that's what the Council of Ministers also said. That this is something that should be under the purview of the United Nations, and therefore we don't feel competent to to make commentary about the Ukrainian war. But everybody in the South, everybody in South America, understands that this conflict has had a a, a negative impact on the lives and possibilities of peoples and nations around the world, and in, in particular here uh, in our region. So. Yes, there's a different posture, a different position between the people in the global south uh, and the people in northern Europe who have uh, adhered to U.S. Uh, interests and U.S. policies on Ukraine. And as a consequence, they are paying the, uh, paying the price for that. In the Orinoco piece, they write, the global systemic transition to multipolarity is irreversible and the historical moment is such that the entire world is taking maximum advantage of it to carve out their role in the emerging order. That's true, but as we often say on this show, uh, imperial global hegemons don't go quietly into that long, dark night. And so when we look at what the United States has done in Ukraine, when we look at Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan, taking us to the brink of what many believed could have wound up and still may wind up being World War III, when we look at how the United States is willing to push these envelopes into military conflict with nuclear powers, I think there's a lot more to this than the global systemic transition is irreversible. Uh, it, it, it really is. And um, 
Well, I mean, it, I think that the, the statement that this is irreversible is, in fact, uh, a fact. Yeah, that is, that is uh, true, and, but the process could be very ugly, resulting in the end of the world as we know it. You're absolutely right, because it's quite clear that it, it appears that with the, the, the obvious end to global white uh, world supremacy, that um, these policymakers and the ruling classes in, in the West just don't appear to be able to handle that. And they are prepared to engage in the most reckless behavior one can imagine. I mean, that Pelosi trip, for example, and, and, and the incitement to, to and the creation of this, of this war in, in Ukraine. Um, the, the, the almost floundering kinds of policies where they, you know, uh, believe that they are, are still operating in a, a international context uh, of, 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 of 2019 as opposed to 2022 and is exposing them uh, uh, profoundly. And they are reacting in such irri- irrational kinds of ways that they have become a threat to all of us. So you're right. They're not going to go out, uh, you know, singing and, and, and just willingly, uh, willingly hand over power to to anybody. They're going to fight to the to the bitter end. We talk about how they're going to fight to the last Ukrainian. Well, they're going to fight to the last one of all of us in the global south uh, before they give up uh, international power. You know, Ajamu, if you could also comment on the recent FBI raid on the Uhuru movement, I think that's part of this dynamic that should not be neglected. What's happening to revolutionary movements inside of the U.S.? Your thoughts? We can't understand what's happening uh, globally until we connect it also to what's happening domestically. The pursuit of an aggressive uh, militaristic policy globally requires uh, complete ideological and political conformity domestically. And so what, what, what population traditionally has been a population that has resisted uh, U.S. imperialism, U.S. militarism, have raised serious questions about these policies? Uh, traditionally, historically, has been the African-American community and the African uh, radical elements, if you will. Uh, so if you want to, to make sure that you don't have uh, a serious opposition in the U.S. to your, your international policies, you target the black liberation movement, uh, you attempt to try to intimidate it into, into silence uh, so that it's not in a position uh, to, 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 put, to, exert, to assert the leadership that normally uh, oppositional politics will, uh, will, will, will be reflective of when the black liberation movement is, in fact, asserting leadership to, to opposition. So, you know, that's what I think the political objective was with this raid on the uh, APSP. Uh, but is, that's another example of it backfiring because people are not intimidated. They're not afraid. In fact, people are going on the political and ideological offensive. What about the element of this, using this, tying it to Russia, and then, of course, injecting, well, we know that this is all tied to Russia's uh, intervention, interference in our elections, and and that whole anti-Russian narrative, all of that ties into this to delegitimize or try to delegitimize the movement. Exactly. And, and, and that is part of the intimidation process, that if you, if you oppose U.S. policies, uh, then you are automatically uh, framed or labeled as a uh, Kremlin apologist. And that's a very, very uh, dangerous and very powerful weapon to, to use. And so, you know, we have to reject that. We are, in fact, doing that. 
Uh, and again, the U.S. has exposed itself in terms of its limitations, even controlling domestic politics. Ajamu Baraka, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune has a piece entitled, Russia-Ukraine Conflict, the Propaganda War. What the mainstream media failed to see in the coverage of the current Ukraine crisis is that there is no text or narrative without context. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an independent investigative journalist, analyst, and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. Daniel Lazar, as always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So I asked the question, what is a story without context? The Orinoco Tribune says long before the mainstream U.S. and U.K. media launched a worldwide propaganda war against the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February, the CIA had laid the foundations of the conflict in the early years following the Second World War, the Cold War. Your thoughts, Daniel Lazar. Yeah, that... um that, that, that piece in the Orinoco Tribune is, uh, is very interesting and very good. I, I mean, essentially, what happened in 1945 is that politics turned on a dime. I mean, in, in 1945, May 1945, the, there was, it was VE Day. Uh, Soviet troops uh, were stationed in Berlin, where they had, you know, uh, conquered the city. Uh, the U.S., British, and French uh, forces uh, had, uh, you know, were in the western part of the country. Um, and so that was, those, the Allies were victorious. Well, so, you know, so it was like, you know, French, German, French, British, Americans, Russians, they're all were celebrating together. Within a few months, a remarkably short time, that coalition had broken up, and the U.S. was avidly making use of ex-fascists in order to, using them against the Soviets. So the U.S. kind of semi-switched sides. It was first allied to the Soviets against the Nazis, and then after May 1945, it was allied with with the fascists against the Soviets. And this alliance in the Ukraine continued, you know, into the early 50s, where the CIA funded uh, remnants of pro-Nazi Ukrainian nationalists who engaged in a guerrilla war. It was really quite bloody. I've seen estimates of as high as 50,000 deaths in the uh, in the Ukraine after after World War II, as the uh, as the, the Soviets sought to suppress this this neo-Nazi movement and the neo-Nazi movement took their revenge on those elements deemed to be pro-Soviet. I mean, just to give you an example, if, if a peasant joined a collective farm, men would show up to his cottage at night and chop his arms off. Okay, so that's the, that's the kind of activities the neo-Nazis were accused of. Um, Sounds like Belgium in the Congo. 
Yes, yes. And then it's just a horrible, horrible kind of racist terrorism. And, and that was sponsored. These forces were sponsored by the West. They were sponsored by the U.S., the CIA. There's just no doubt about it. The record is quite clear. And the CIA would go on to back, you know, similar elements all over the world. You know, Dan, one of the interesting things about this Ukraine conflict, there are so many contexts, there's so many lens through which we can view it. But one of the things I think that has been interesting is that it has sparked a discussion about the contradictions of the arguments that the U.S.-led NATO makes about, you know, democracy and good doing all over the world. When you look at their connections to neo-Nazi elements and you look at these contradictions of the Poles and the Ukrainians supposedly coming together when the Banderites were the ones who slaughtered 100,000 Poles when you look at the history. You know, there's so many things you look at now. And I also see things such as Zelensky bringing a couple of uh, Nazis to speak before the Greek parliament with, we all know, you know, the history of the occupation of Greece and on and on. And so we see these contradictions being awoken or revisited. Your thoughts on the contradictions that are being created and highlighted by the Ukrainian conflict in, in Europe and abroad? Well, it, the, the U.S. is just being grotesquely hypocritical, and all those back in the U.S. are being the same. And, and it's, it's very dangerous. I mean, essentially, uh, the, the, the problem of, of, of neo-Nazi influence in the Ukraine was widely acknowledged uh, from, from 2014 until early to 2022. I, I mean, in, in 2015, the Ukrainian parliament declared Stepan Bandera a national hero. Bandera is the, is the pro-Nazi World War II leader who killed thousands of Jews and perhaps as many as 100,000 Poles in mid-1943 in a very nasty uh, ethnic cleansing operation in the western part of the country. Um, they... Uh, Lvov erected a huge statue of Bandera and in 2019 declared the year to be the year of Bandera. The National Parliament actually made it a crime to deny the heroism of Bandera. I mean, the, and the Banderites, the Banderovsky, as we call them in, in Russian Ukrainian, they've mounted, you know, violent actions against Roma against gays. Uh, I mean, it goes on and on. And there's a huge cover-up going on, going on in the Western media about these crimes. The U.S. ran out, the, the uh, New York Times ran a front-page story, you know, celebrating the of the Azov Battalion in the siege of Mariupol. The Azov Battalion is a neo-Nazi military formation. And in fact, the Ukraine is the only country in the world to have a neo-Nazi unit officially incorporated into its national military structure. And so it's important, and thank you for saying that, because one of the key elements of the story is context is very important in understanding narrative. And so they write, although the extreme right parties hold little power in the Rada, groups such as the Azov Battalion wield a great deal of power in Ukraine's street militias, the National Guard, the Kiev police, and the regular army. Initially, the U.S. banned assistance to Azov in 2015 because of its neo-Nazi orientation. 
and assaults on the groups that you mentioned earlier, but lifted the ban the following year. So that, to me, takes the historic elements or context of this story and brings it to the here and now. And a lot of that is dismissed. Oh, there are no Nazis in in Ukraine. Oh, that's just, oh, and if there are, ah, there are Nazis everywhere. I've been on international programs and people have said that to me. But that, to me, drives the point home to the here and now. Well, yes, I mean, those, those street patrols that the Azov Battalion engaged in, those had official government backing. And those patrols then conducted pogroms against gypsies, Roma, as they're properly called. Mm-hmm. And there were several deaths. I, I mean, this is, this is, this is amazing. The, the, the government paid the Azov Battalion to set up summer camps for kids. So kids could sing songs in honor of Stepan Bandera and give the Nazi salute. And also, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, proclaim death to the Russians. I, I mean, this is just a scandal. I mean, everyone was completely shocked when, when you know, when when, uh, when, when neo Nazis marched in a it was a Char- Charlottesville, Virginia, right? And uh, and a woman was killed, mm-hmm. uh, and they were outraged. Heather Heyer, Trump was saying, Heather, yeah, they were outraged at, Dyer, at, at Donald Trump for saying there were good people on both sides. Quite right. But nonetheless, I mean, here the U.S. government is essentially covering up massive Nazi influence. Uh, Where is the outrage? Well, it's certainly on the critical hour, that's for sure, Dan, but doesn't seem to be a lot of other places that it should be. Here's another great article, Ornoco Tribune. Polls show almost no one trusts U.S. media after decades of war propaganda and lies. The CIA has long manipulated the media, spreading disinformation to justify U.S. wars. Today, just 11 percent of Americans trust television news. And, you know, I've been reading a lot. CNN's trying to figure it out. When you read about CNN, they're doing all of these things. But the, the one thing they don't say is, you know, perhaps we should just tell people the truth and give them news. Maybe that model would work. Your thoughts on this, Dan? <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, don't, I, I think the, 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 the mainstream media, the big, the big corporate media, the, uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN and uh, CNBC, uh, I have never seen them more politicized and more propagandistic than they are now. They are just engaging in naked pro-government propaganda. And the New York Times, I think, well, the, the, the Washington Post is horrible, but the New York Times, I think, is really exemplary. I mean, I mean and I guess the reason is we, we used to think more highly of the Times. Right. Uh, but it is, it is just thinking into, a, into this rank. It's always been considered America's paper of record. Yeah. I've spent my I've spent my my entire uh, entire uh, adult life reading reading the New York Times, um, and uh, but what's happened to it the last uh, five or ten years is just sad. I mean, it has just turned into a government mouthpiece or, or a Democratic Party mouthpiece, to put it more accurately. In this Orinoco Tribune piece, the corporate media's treachery has been especially clear in the demonstrably false stories it disseminated to try to justify the U.S. wars in Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, and Syria. This disgraceful legacy continues today in the proxy war that Washington is waging on Russia via Ukraine. 
fake news echoed by the press has served as a powerful form of U.S. information warfare. And then we've got the piece, and I know Garland's sick of me going to this, but I, but to me it gets to the point. <laughs> in a break with the past, U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. NBC comes on and tells you we're lying to you. Yeah. I mean, that's what this article says. We are lying to you, and it seems to fall upon deaf ears. Uh, well, it doesn't fall upon, upon deaf ears. I mean, I really believe that and there's also, I believe that Orinoco Tribune article pointed out that that support or belief in the press is down to, I think, 16% for print media and 11% for yes. TV news. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, so the, the, the people aren't, aren't, aren't stupid. I mean, Americans are not stupid. They know what's up. They can tell when they're being lied to. Now, they draw a whole lot of conclusions from that, you know, right and wrong. But nonetheless, they can sense what's propaganda. They can sense when the when the when the message is being tailored to a certain outcome. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I just find the whole thing completely outrageous. I guess the reason that I said fall upon deaf ears is because we're not seeing the resistance in the streets to the lies that are being disseminated via these media outlets. Well, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I mean I, you're right, of course. You're, you're absolutely correct. I mean, the, you know, things are, are, things are pretty calm out there for the moment. Uh, Americans are going about their daily lives. They're not demonstrating in the streets. They're not, they're not forming an anti-war movement. But, you know. Th- that's what I meant. That's what I meant by that. But, but, but give it time. <laughs> I mean, people are Garland. Do we have time? Is the question with Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan? Do we have time, Garland Nixon? But you know, Dan, I also think that what we're going to see is there's going to be major civil unrest. It's going to be a mess in Europe before this winter's out. Your thoughts? Yes, yes, yeah. I think you're uh, you're correct. Uh, uh, this is his name, Gerhard Schroeder, the former prime, the former yes. chancellor of Germany. I mean, I mean, he uh, he said something very sensible. He says, you know, he says <laughs> Germany is facing a is facing a, a, a gas shortage. The turbines have, have not been, or have been slow to be installed in a in a Nord Stream one. He says, well, hey, just turn on Nord Stream <laughs> two. <laughs> Duh, it's sitting there. Just turn and flick the uh, the the switch. So quickly, because we only have about twenty seconds. <laughs> to that point, Dan. To that point. Yes. Do you think we're going to start hearing in about another week to ten days more people saying that we got fifteen seconds? I I I sincerely, totally hope so. I pray that it's true. I I really want it to happen. But no, we'll, we'll, we'll have to say. Daniel Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Reuters has a piece by Luke Cohen entitled, Analysis Beyond Yachts and Planes, U.S. Turns to Foreign Agent Laws to Curb Russian Influence. In the five months since the U.S. Department of Justice launched a task force to seize Russian oligarchs' assets to pressure Moscow over its invasion of Ukraine, prosecutors also have targeted some less tangible Russia's influence. What is the government really targeting? Influence or a different narrative based in fact? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He hosts the podcast, The Left is Dead. James Carey, as always, sir, welcome back. Always good to be here. How dangerous is this? The Department of Justice, they've broadly ramped up enforcement of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, or FARA, and a related law known by its code number 951. And FARA and 951, they allow prosecutors to go after very broad activities such as lobbying or running media campaigns. Then they can go into espionage status, which focuses on agents seeking classified or military information. Your thoughts, James Carey? Well, it seems that they're kind of blending the two together at this point. I mean, they're um, equating influence with espionage almost the way the media speaks about it. But um, I think this is just, again, like you said in the intro here, this is an attempt to block out another narrative because most of these were not any type of espionage. They were at best, you could call them influence campaigns. Um, these left parties who've gotten raided in the U.S., the people who got, you know, um, this woman who was arrested for, or who has a warrant issued for her for wanting to start an I Love Russia um, group for youth. You know, these aren't really espionage. And I think that even with the Russian narrative coming through so weakly here, they, they really panic over it. And I think you're just seeing them kind of blend those two things together to, again, you know, the way you see on, like, social media where, you're a Russian bot if you disagree. You know, people think those still exist. Um, I think you're going to see that people will think you're just working for Russia now if you have an al- alternate opinion. And I don't think that that's, you know, I think they're just trying to equate that with spying, and which is ridiculous because it's, it's influence maybe, but I don't think Russian influence is that heavy. But I think they're definitely trying to just pin up anyone who has an alternate narrative. And obviously Russian media and all Russian you know, Russian outlets have always highlighted those voices. Well, you know, the other thing, too, I think, James, is, you know, alignment versus influence. And that's this. You know, I interviewed the people from the Uhuru movement, and I found they've been doing the same thing for 50 years. Right. But what they did now was they took a position, and the position was, we believe that Ukraine is fighting against the neo-colonial powers. We are for, you know, Africa has had a lot of trouble with colonialism. Therefore, they took the position that they supported Russia in the war. The United States is not involved and has not declared war. So any entity in the United States can take any position they want on the war. But it appeared here, they were saying, like, the U.S. said a couple of years ago, they ran a couple of candidates for St. Petersburg mayor, which they have a right to and got like one and a half percent of the vote, that that was the influence, that the Russians really are concerned about getting one and a half percent of the mayoral race in St. Petersburg. So it comes across as preposterous, but I think it's nefarious in that it gives them an opportunity to go after any organizations, in this instance, a socialist organization or an anti-imperialist organization that's pushing against the U.S. State Department and national security states narratives. Your thoughts, James? Yeah, I think so, because we see how locked up the narrative is here. You know, if the media 
well, the media doesn't bring it up here too much anymore, but if the media brings up Ukraine, it's always in a hopeful light, you know, and I think that, again, yeah, nobody wants these javelins dumped into this country, you know, nobody wants all these weapons dumped into Ukraine, they're going to go missing, we know they're going to end up all over, and I think it's right for people to question that, because we've seen it happen before, and I think that, that, yeah, the U.S. wants to stop this, because, one, this is big business for them, you know, these javelins are worth money, Um and two, they can't have this competing narrative, and this is a good way to also just wipe out anyone who is opposed to imperialism. And obviously, empire over the last two decades has looked really bad in the U.S. You know, it, it's not been a series of wins like we thought it would be. So I think that as that crumbles apart, you're going to see further enforcement. And now with Russia in, you know, the ground war in Europe, there's obviously more of a an interest by U.S., you know, citizens to actually watch this and... um Whereas, say, Syria, there was not. But now with you, you know, with the U.S., so many U.S. eyes on it for that moment, they had to kind of take out any opposition to this thing. So as they did that, I think they're just going to move from, like, more groups that are opposed to imperialism in general and just anyone who opposes U.S. foreign policy. But to equate that with, yeah, there's some type of influence going on. I don't think so, because Uhuru is, like, one of the most fringe left groups you can find. You know, and to think that this is what, the Russians are dumping money into to, what, try and create a separatist movement in the U.S.? That's ridiculous. So, yeah, they're just going after people who are opposed to the war and who have any other, like I said, the counter-narrative. Any counter-narrative is dangerous, especially as ours falls apart. And there also seems to be a very selective nature to the ideologies or interests that are being pursued because APAC, they can pump unfettered millions into state and congressional races in Ohio against Nina Turner, in Georgia years ago against Cynthia McKinney, in Michigan against Rashida Tlaib, in Maryland against Donna Edwards. And the interesting thing about everybody that I mentioned is they're all anti-Zionist. So it's okay for Israel to pump money into American elections to challenge these individuals, but somehow there's a problem when the Yuhuru movement that's been in the game for 50 years wants to come out and say there's a problem with the proxy war in Ukraine. Yeah, it's an absolute double standard because, I mean, look, U.S. leaders go to APAC every year and swear allegiance to Israel and the Zionist project. Um, they outspent they spent a bunch of money on Haley Stevens in my district, one of the most forgettable Democrats I've ever seen. You know, uh, but again, we saw what happens when you insult Apex money, right? We saw Ilhan, who's become really kind of quieted down now because when she said it, everyone in her party and everyone in the opposing party accused her of anti-Semitism for pointing out that, hey, this lobby spends money. And what is more dangerous than, you know, these APAC dumping millions of dollars into the U.S. or a member of Uhuru going to, like, Russia for an anti-imperialism conference, you know, an anti-globalization conference. And you, you, to think Russia has an influence anywhere near Israel, obviously, is ridiculous. But Israel is just allowed to carry that out in the open. And I think that's how, you know, most things work here. We see the rules are written for whoever's in charge, and they don't go the other way. But, yeah, this is a double standard, and I think that we'll do anything for our allies. Look, Joe Biden went to beg Saudi Arabia to lower gas prices. We'll clearly do anything for our, our friends, but... If you're an enemy and you have an opposing viewpoint, uh, even if Israel has an opposing viewpoint, we support it. But if you're an enemy who has an opposing viewpoint, um, it can't be voiced here. You know, if you're an ally, you can do whatever. You can cut up a journalist and, and a consulate, whatever. Uh, but that's fine. You're an ally. You have supplies with something crucial or you act in some crucial role for the U.S. empire. But if you don't and you're opposed to that and you're opposed to even just 
not you know not becoming the other pole of power, but a multipolar world. Anything, any idea like that where the U.S. just isn't the world police is you know dangerous. And obviously, Israel always wants that. And I think Israel can't stand. Um, Israel's worried about they're going to be criticized for human rights because the more things like Black Lives Matter and stuff like that catches on here, the more people are going to be looking at Palestine and being, asking what's going on. And I think that Israel has to spend a lot of money to try and keep down even mild criticism at this point. Another story, a U.S. to enrage Kim Jong-un with assassination dry run. Here's the interesting thing about that. So they're going to go back to these military operations, part which they feign attacking North Korea on North Korea's border. And they practice basically murdering Kim Jong-un and all of the basically it's a practice run to how do you start a nuclear war? And here's what's so bad. Trump went to North Korea and tried to get a deal and froze those military maneuvers when he did that. And here Biden's in, and it's uh, another provocative maneuver after the Taiwan Pelosi debacle. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think that this is just, you know, that, again, we're trying to exert muscle we don't have. And I think that this is another sort of attempt to do that. Um, Clearly, I don't know why it's you know, the Biden administration is in opposition to talking to North Korea, I'd imagine just because Trump did. And the Democratic narrative at the time was that he was giving them everything, you know, which is ridiculous because we're we're in the same position we started in 2016. So that's obviously ridiculous. But I think there is this sort of challenge because the only thing that Biden seems to be able to do with the empire is kind of virtue signal, essentially, right? And this is what happens in Ukraine when it's just constant talks of, well, well, hey, you know, we don't back, we, we don't, want this country invaded, but we don't have anything we can do about it. And I think North Korea is the same thing, where there's nothing they can do about it, but the empire has a signal that it still has a pulse, which is getting harder to do, but this is what it has to do. It's going to carry on its traditional roles as we kind of fall behind, and obviously China's a big threat. So I think we want to project our presence more in Asia anyway. You know, they've said as much. And I think you're seeing this, and it's kind of going to revert to the old um, sort of Cold War mentality, and I think North Korea is just going to go back to the role they filled in both the Cold War and after. So the United States backs the proxy war in Ukraine. Nancy Pelosi goes into Taiwan and she's trying to pick a fight with a nuclear power called China. And now we're talking about war games where we want to simulate or practice the decapitation of Kim Jong-un in North Korea. A lot of grand gestures, right? (laughs) Wow. The president of South Korea won't meet with Nancy Pelosi because he says, I don't want none of that smoke. With the war games that China is now engaged in around Taiwan, South Korea says, you know what, Nancy? I'm on vacation and I'm not coming. I'm not coming to see you. The United States is it seems as though it's trying its damnedest to pick a fight, a war somewhere over the rainbow. Yeah, I mean, I think it could be either a fight or they're trying to sort of alienate their allies from doing any business with China. But I think that China has their lock on the Pacific Rim so tight that, I mean, even Australia has to got, get used to doing business with China despite their opposition to it. You know, um, I think the thing is that we want to at least because, you know, the TVP never went through and we're kind of seeing China lock us out with their own trade deals in Asia. Uh, I think we, we want to see people isolated from them. We want to see South Korea isolated from them. We want to make sure Japan stays isolated from them. We want to make sure that, you know, all the other Vietnam, Philippines, all these countries that are around China where we're worried about influence. I think we see American leaders sort of, you know, propping them up where, you know, Taiwan is the 
perfect example. This is a way to just sort of isolate these leaders from doing business with China. And I think even if we don't necessarily push, if they're not necessarily pushing for a war, they're definitely pushing towards increased tensions because, you know, I think that the U.S. model is if there's not going to be a war, we're going to make sure your economy is in the gutter. You know, we're going to destroy something anyway, so you might as well go to war. But, yeah, I think second choice is let's just try and lock you out from China, which is a foolish move because it's impossible to do at this point. China has so much dominance in the East Asian markets that there's no way the U.S. can isolate anyone from needing to do business with them. Yeah. Last thing real quick. Senate votes 95 to 1 to expand NATO into Sweden and Finland. Got about a minute and a half. Well, I mean, this is uh, Biden's bipartisan consensus, right? He got the bipartisan bill through and it's defense spending. But um, I think that you're going to see more of this. Obviously, there's Again, this is Cold War posturing, but we can't directly point at China, even though Pelosi's trying to. Um, we need them. So Russia has become a great enemy to kind of go against. It's been great to expand NATO. It's going to be great for the military-industrial complex. But I don't know. I don't think uh, – I think they're going to have a hard time. I think Turkey's going to mess with it for a long time and maybe give it up on. But um, I think that they're going to have a hard time actually getting those – you know, these two more powers into NATO. I don't think that's going to happen here. Um, I see it's just, again, this is an expansion. This is all a big giveaway. So Ukraine's been a big giveaway for everyone who makes missiles and artillery and everything like that. So I think we're just going to see more of a giveaway if they expand NATO and it'll be selling things to Finland, you know? It's a money laundering operation. Absolutely. James Carey, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back. All right. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. We're out.